0: The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Professor Christian Luprecht joins us, professor at Queen's University and uh, Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defence College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defence at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, And he's the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press. Christian, thank you very much for joining us. We've talked about this situation in uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine and what it may develop and what may be Putin's plan. What's your view of what's coming out of Russia right now as far as Ukraine is concerned? Because Biden seems to think, or publicly seems to feel, that this could turn into a hot shooting war.
1: Yeah, my sense is that given the comments by the Russian foreign minister that uh, about this is like a a mute person and a deaf person trying to negotiate with one another, uh, that uh, they are on the West and Russia are on very different planes here. Um, And that these two planes simply don't seem to have an intersection point. And that's, I think, what really fundamentally concerns me. Uh, The other is, of course, that I think the Russian demands were never meant as realistic demands. They were meant as spurious justifications for uh, military action that Russia had always intended um, and that it intends to follow through in part because Ukraine is becoming both a prize and a problem. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Vladimir Putin's effort has been to, um, Undo to the best of his ability, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he's called the greatest uh, historical calamity of the 21st century. And he's been reasonably successful at that. If you look at Belarus, uh, Russian troops are back in Armenia, um, in uh, Kazakhstan, um, in a couple of the other stands. Um, they uh, have occupied a part, effectively, of Moldova. Um, but the big prize here is Ukraine. Uh, so that's the crown, that uh, the jewel that's really missing from, uh, uh, from Crown and his crowning achievement. And I think he's looking for a legacy, and that ultimately is his legacy. The other issue is that Ukraine is becoming a real problem for Putin. Because after 30 years, however inchoate and imperfect Ukrainian democracy is, it, it, the institutions are becoming a bit more resilient. The economy works a little bit better every day. Um, And uh, the country is becoming a little bit less corrupt. The military is becoming a little bit more effective. It's slow, it's glacial, it's day by day, uh, but it is providing an alternative to the self-interested kleptocratic elite uh, that has been robbing Russia blind under the Putin regime. And so I think Putin is genuinely worried that once Russians see that there is actually a better way of life and a better alternative, uh, that could prove very problematic for his own longevity. And of course, um, his only option is to stay in office forever, and uh, he still has a couple of decades to go. And I think um, that's uh, why he's looking at undoing the gains that have been made.
0: So should we be realistically expecting Russian troops to cross the border?
1: My scenario on this, as I think we've discussed before, is that the Russians will stage a counter-revolution. They will send some special forces, special ops into Kiev, they'll cause a bunch of border skirmishes to draw away security forces. They will install their own puppet regime, the way, for instance, uh, they have in other parts of the Russian periphery. Um, And that regime will then invite Russian troops into Ukraine. Now, so that way, Russia can say, this is not an invasion. We are here. So this is, of course, the premise that you saw in Belarus. Um, where the Belarusian leader invited um, Russian security forces um, and some military assets to assist him in what he perceived to be his time of need, namely precisely the time of need uh, when Belarusians, after years of kleptocratic dictatorship, had decided that they had uh, enough. And so I think this is likely the model. And this is likely why Putin will say, look, there's no invasion. We came here because the new government uh, decided that they needed our help.
0: Okay, so now we have Western leaders, Biden, Johnson, uh, the president of France, Macron, making statements, making phone calls, visiting various other leaders, and suggesting this and that. Does Canada have a role to play, or did we have, were we offered some cards and we just dropped them?
1: Canada has two roles to play. One is that, of course, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, on the premise of Western security protections. And so the West has a moral obligation to support Ukraine in this fight. It probably doesn't have a moral obligation for NATO to support Ukraine in that fight. But certainly I think um, Canada continuing to sit on its hands and refusing to send offensive weapons to Ukraine is a fundamental abrogation of the commitment that Canada among other countries had made to Ukraine in return for Ukraine, uh, giving up its uh, its nuclear weapons. The other uh, commitment that Canada has is that the hard lessons Canada learned from the first half of the 21st century is that Canada has a fundamental interest in the political uh, integrity, the territorial integrity, the economic prosperity, the social harmony of Europe, that uh, Putin and his regime are effectively calling not just into question the stability of Europe, but the entire uh, uh, post-World War II Uh, security architecture in terms of that we don't call uh, the existence of other countries' sovereignty into question through military force. We don't redraw boundaries by military force. And the post-Cold War security architecture, which is to say that uh, countries have a sovereign right to choose their affiliations, their international organizations, and their orientations. And of course, Putin's approach to Europe is that these European countries really don't matter because they're not great powers and that he by force and by coercion can force countries into his orbit, thereby completely ignoring and abrogating their sovereign right for their own people to choose their own destiny. And if Putin succeeds, that will not only empower Russia to make further attempts to expand its influence, perhaps in the Baltic states, uh, but it will also embolden players such as China to redraw their own boundaries and to use force and coercion. And we would find ourselves back in a very, very dangerous scenario. That is to say, a pre-World War II scenario where it is really the role of force uh, and of coercion that is going to be the fundamental um, way of getting things done in the international arena. And we know what disaster a 30 years war from 1914 to 1945 and the tens of millions of lives lost, the humanitarian catastrophe that brought upon us. And right. Canada needs to look at this and go, this is not how we can run the world.
0: Yeah. Very, very disturbing. Before we take a break and ask you to wear another of your hats, and that is look at our internal situation in Canada that's been developing, not just over the last three weeks, but it's been developing for longer than that. Let me ask you this question, which may seem silly to some people. Is Russia's military really strong enough to, if they if they were to decide to, if Putin were to decide to enter uh, Ukraine with a full military assault, Is that military of russia strong enough to take on ukraine and what may follow
1: well that is precisely why canada needs to step up and support ukraine including with intelligence and offensive weapons because we need to sow doubt in putin's mind that his militaries can succeed Um, both beijing and moscow are very good at spinning tales and narratives um, about their capabilities their resources But let's face it, the Russian military, this is not the Soviet army. Um, This is a military that has significant morale problems. It has well-documented maintenance problems. Much of the equipment is very old equipment, uh, in many cases dating back to the 1970s and, and, and earlier. And this is a military that has significant modernization problems. That is to say, there are some troops that are extremely effective and very good the Spesnas, so their special forces troops, the Wagner Group, that is basically um, uh, Putin's private militia that he sends around the world to cause havoc and human rights abuses. Um, it, and there are certain other units that have more modern equipment. Uh, It's nuclear forces, for instance, Um, but uh, by and large, although he has amassed 100,000 troops, this is not like 100,000 Uh, the equivalent of 100,000 NATO troops. And that's why I think it'll be interesting to see, because nobody's disclosed what sort of weapons have been provided to the Ukrainians. We haven't disclosed what sort of intelligence we'd be willing to provide the Ukrainians. Um, It'll be interesting to see how resilient the Ukrainian military can prove here. Because as I was in Latvia a few years ago, and Uh, I spoke to a a Latvian general and I said, you know, general, if the Russians show up here, like, how are we going to defend this country? And he says, Christian, we don't need to win. We just need to make sure we don't lose. And I think that ultimately has to be the Ukrainian posture, that they can make this so painful for the Russians. Because once you have hundreds and thousands of Russian mothers on, on Russian streets protesting the Putin regime about their sons coming back in body bags for an unpopular war, Putin isn't going to be able to jail all those mothers or or have their security forces shoot shoot them. And so I think sowing that doubt is a really important component because the Russian population um, is very supportive of Putin's actions of seeing Ukraine as part of greater Russia. But what they won't be supportive of is many of their boys coming back in body bags.
0: There was a a National Post uh, column that was um, titled, Blockades Show Canadian Incompetence is the Biggest Threat, Not Insurrection. And it quotes Professor Luprecht. So, uh, Christian, let's, um, let's, let's talk about this. Canada's governments, and we had many guests on today speaking about their frustration with particularly the federal government and particularly the Liberals and Justin Trudeau by their inaction. Canada's governments are then responsible for what's happening now in Ottawa and what happened to the Ambassador Bridge by not being assertive enough over the last number of years and certainly the last weeks. Is that the takeaway?
1: There's a strategic and there's an operational takeaway. By strategic takeaway, I mean that governments of both stripes have ensured that the national security architecture in this country is no longer fit for purpose. And I think that's what these protests show, that we simply don't have the tools and instruments that we need in a globalized society where state and non-state actors threaten the integrity of our democratic institutions and our democratic way of life. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is for instance, the flows of illicit money coming uh, reportedly into this country to support uh, and sustain some of these protests? Well, we have a terrific financial intelligence agency, FinTrack, but we've made the extraordinary decision compared to just about every other ally that this agency would not have any enforcement powers. Now, the premise then is, okay, so we'll do the, let the police do the enforcement. Well, we know how good police and especially the RCMP are at enforcing financial crime. Look at the Khan Commission for Money Laundering in British Columbia that will support in mid-May and that will be scathing in its assessment. Look at the fact that nobody in this country has ever gone to jail for transnational money laundering so we're simply not postured either legislatively or um, or in our uh, law enforcement capabilities uh, to deal with some of these challenges the other is, Australia has passed very robust foreign interference legislation, realizing that foreign bad actors are actively leveraging resources to try to influence Australian democratic institutions in a way that undermines Australian democracy. And that gives governments substantial powers, including, for instance, uh, seizing monies that come from uh, suspicious flows um, abroad. Uh, but of course in canada politicians again of both uh, on both sides of the aisles have said well that's too controversial we don't want to do that here so what we're seeing is the result of government inaction and this very homeopathic national security posture that we have that is simply completely inadequate
0: okay so if we look at what's going on in ottawa that's one thing that's the nation's capital that should be the responsibility and certainly should be the turf of a federal government when we look at what happened at the ambassador bridge and it's calming down there <laughs> But when we look at the Ambassador Bridge, that is our turf, but it's also the U.S. turf. And they stand to lose a lot of money, a lot of product, a lot of influence if that bridge is compromised. And are we not just inviting the Americans to say, okay, if you won't, we will.
1: There's a couple of challenges. Well, if we can't demonstrate that we can get a handle on this, there's going to be a major incentive for US manufacturers to make their next investments in the US rather than in Canada. If we can't uh, demonstrate that we have the integrity of those supply chains at heart and that we can also make sure that a few hundred people can't ultimately compromise the integrity of those supply chains. That's I think why, you know, letting some of these protests go for uh, for as long as we have is already uh, is already problematic. The other element is the extent to which the federal government has been passing the buck to the province and say, oh, this municipal jurisdiction, we have nothing to do with that. Anytime you deal with the border, necessarily, there's there's an important federal element, and it's an issue of national security. Um, And I want to know where the RCMP officers to surge the capacities that we need in places such as Windsor and in places such as Ottawa, because the enforcement that you can do is directly related to the number of officers that you have on site. And it looks to me, even in Windsor, that we're still struggling um, in providing the surge capacity that is actually needed, not just to to enforce these protests, but to enforce it peacefully. Because ultimately, we put both the protesters' security at risk, as well as those of the law enforcement members, if we don't have enough people to enforce the direction that's been given by the province in terms of the state of emergency, and that's been given by the courts in terms of the court injunction.